our people have lived here for over 8,000 years and we really value our environment and the relationship with our landscape and the interconnectedness of, of working together. The company came to meet with the community and said, this is your river and how can we make this technology work? We have the ability to self-determine our own futures. Your future doesn't have to look like Igiagig, but here's one example that you can draw from. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Direct Current and Energy.gov podcast. I'm your host, Matt Dozier. For this installment of our People Powered series, we spoke to someone who's a remarkable champion of clean energy and climate action in the remote Alaskan village where she grew up. Alexana Salmon is the village council president of Igiagig, a tiny community about 250 miles southwest of Anchorage, Alaska. Life in such an isolated place can be difficult, and the village faces an uncertain future compounded by climate and social changes. But Alexana is committed to preserving her tribe's traditional way of life, its reliance on salmon fishing, while balancing modern opportunities like generating its own electricity through a river hydropower project funded by the Department of Energy. Coming up, you'll hear from Alexana about why she chose to return to her homeland after college, how life there has changed since she was little, and her vision for a bright future in Igiagi powered by renewable energy. Stay tuned. It's science for the people. This is Direct Current. I'm Alexander Salmon, and I belong to the village of Ikiagig in southwest Alaska. Tell me, if you could, a little bit about yourself and, and your background. I was born and raised in Ikiagig, and I went off to school with an intention to return to help my community. We're a close-knit community of about 70 people. And I see a lot of opportunity as well as a high quality of life in Ikiagig. So I really love academia and would like to continue pursuing it. I finished my uh, world development degree last year out of University of Alaska Fairbanks. But right now I'm raising six kids out in Ikiagig and it's the prime place to raise a family. But I have many, many interests. My passions are really in cultural revitalization, language preservation. You know, one of the projects we're working on is building the first non-fuel building community cultural center in Bristol Bay. And so I have a lot of different projects moving forward. Currently, as the president of Igiagig Village Council, a position I've held since 2008, the movement to alternative energy has taken a lot the last decade of our time. Can you describe it to me, uh, the village, what life is like there? So the Igiagig of my childhood is drastically different than the Igiagig of today. But one thing I'm really proud of is our people have lived here for over 8,000 years. And we really value our environment and the relationship with our landscape and the interconnectedness of, of working together to move our community forward. So we've grown 60% between the last two censuses. We have a very diversified local economy, and we are able to balance our subsistence way of life with the wage economy. We have really forward-thinking residents that really want to reduce our carbon footprint and are aware of our changing climate. I think our community has a lot of awareness, and then we're really centered on our youth, raising our youth to be the next generation of leaders and creating a community where they will want to remain. 
Um, but one thing I'm the most proud about our community is we've kept our indigenous value system intact in place and our indigenous planning methods in place. And that has allowed us to move forward with consensus as we take on these new ideas. What are some of the ways in which things have changed, things you've seen changed in Igiagi? Growing up, the seasons were very normal and predictable. And I just remember by Halloween, it would always be frozen and the roads would be iced over and it was cold. And then the lake, you could travel across it when it froze over. And we were a caribou people. We had the Mulchatna caribou herd of thousands and thousands of caribou passing through our village, you know, for a week at a time. It was such a part of our life. And then in my lifetime, so the later, you know, two decades, the winters started becoming incredibly unpredictable. The fall time rains wouldn't freeze, so then all the ground got saturated. We've had a lot of erosion on our river. Um, if you look at my grand fish camp, it stayed fine for 40 years, and then in the end, it just got wiped out in one of the fall storms. So we started having incredible storms. Our lake stopped freezing over regularly. Everything is irregular. We're not sure when it will freeze. And the caribou herd migrated completely north. And now our main source of meat is from moose. So there are some really, really drastic climate and environment changes. Our fish still run really strong and their size has gotten smaller. Something is making them return home earlier. So we still have an abundance of salmon, which we're really proud of, but they're smaller. The water, though, is still as pristine as when I was two years old, and we still drink it regularly right out of the river. That's really important to us. We've been working hard to protect our water source. And then the other changes are social. We've become a much larger community, but ultimately the value in our form of governance has remained constant. So we have a level of stability there. How did you come into this role as village council president? So I grew up in Igiagig, the only child in my own grade, my whole educational experience when I was in Igiagig. And there was no like Head Start or any kind of a program. I think I went right into kindergarten eventually. So my entire mornings were spent being babysat by the various elders that lived down the street. So I would just go from house to house to house. And it was my favorite. They fed me their soul food. They told me their stories. At that time, I could understand Yupik fluently. It was just a very wonderful time of my life. And because of that, I developed this relationship where I loved being around elders. And then our elders, by 2001, they started looking at the outmigration of the people from our area and what they were calling the brain drain and our village started comprehensive strategic planning with the very central question of what does Igiagig need to be to be a place our young people will want to return to. And I was in high school then, and I participated without knowing how impactful this would be. So basically, they did this planning, and one of the themes that emerged were cultural revitalization and building a cultural center. So I actually went off to college and studied anthropology and Native American studies with the intention to return and record our history, write our own history, and then have this center built. When I was in college, I used the anthropological funding sources to go and do all the field work of our elders 
talking about our homeland and actually fly them to our homeland. And then it, it inspired the thesis, which is the social, political, and economic forces of how we settled into a year-round community right here at Igyagig today. And then that, coupled with the Native American Studies degree, opened my eyes to all the colonial forces that were at play that created such a complex landscape for our people to actually achieve self-determination. And then what happened was in my senior year, my father, who was the administrator of our village council for 25 years and had spearheaded the whole vision process for all that time, he died in a tragic plane crash. And so I had no choice but to return home immediately after because we were like at a critical point in time. Our community wanted to make the shift to alternative energy and they had already secured the first round of renewable energy funding to start, start us on that path. So they had put together a plan. And to this day, I cannot convey how important that was. I came home and ended up being appointed as the president, and I had an entire plan. And it had 100% community buy-in because it was the community's plan. And so I didn't intend to serve I was asked to, and my great aunt was the president. She was the one who gave me a graduation card, and in it she said, please come back and help our village. Our people have always been happy to let our youth like go explore the world, but please come back. And I have saved that card because it was so genuine. You know, the love our elders have for our youth, and and they're always there for us. And then when she said, please come back and help our village, I fully intended to. And when I came back, we had a meeting, and she looked at me and she said, oh, my Yupik name is Ababi. She said, Ababi, with your education, you'll be able to talk to people from the outside. And she said that because Yupik was her first language, but she is brilliant. And she was the one who gave me all the values, and she would make sure to stop in my office and tell me why we do things the way we do them. And since then... I've been doing that, but I also went through a period of time where I was also the administrator, and it's just been a very grueling but rewarding work experience. I've worked for the tribe for 20 years now, and wow. and so I've really figured out the processes at a community level and how to move big projects forward. And so I've been trying to share some of that information with other rural communities. Every one of our communities are so different but we do have commonalities enough to be able to learn from each other. Do you want to be part of the energy transition to help communities like Igiagig? Apply for the Clean Energy Corps and find your calling in the energy sector. As the largest funder of clean energy technology in the country, the Department of Energy has led the way on innovations that have helped accelerate wind, solar, energy efficiency, and much more. The Clean Energy Corps is our newest opportunity to discover careers across a wide range of fields, locations, and expertise, all working towards meeting the nation's climate goals and delivering a more equitable energy future. So don't wait. It's easy to apply. Just submit your resume and fill out the survey at energy.gov careers today. I wanted to ask you about the role that energy plays in life in Igyagig. What does having control over your energy supply mean to the community? Well, it definitely means self-sufficiency. So that's another social change we've had. 
in the past, when everyone commercial fished, they would bring their boats back and they would have them loaded with these gas tanks, these large 300-gallon drums or 55-gallon drums. And so you'll see yards today littered with some drums from, uh, from that type of lifestyle, kind of everybody on their own. And then when the community moved to a central generator system, then the village needed fuel supply. And at that time, there was always a fall barge that would come up and deliver fuel. And then what has happened with changing environment and economy is unpredictable water levels. We have a very sensitive stretch of river where the water doesn't sometimes raise high enough with the changes we're seeing. So during my time as administrator, the barge got unpredictable. So you might wait until fall to find out there would be no fall barge, and then you would not receive your whole year supply of fuel. It was a very, like, such a panicked moment watching the water levels, coordinating with the barges. And then our runway is too small to get large aircraft in. And so flying fuel in was prohibitively expensive. So, in cases where we're all across Alaska sharing one fuel airline, there have been cases in the winter where people have run out of fuel waiting for the fuel plane. And then you're chartering in drums that'll fit in small airplanes just to get by and everything is you know doubles in expenses at that point maybe triples and so you just feel very vulnerable and then you're paying whatever cost at the end because you have no choice at that point you have no options so the situation is like the lights on or the lights out and lights are not even important it's really the heat on or the heat off in the dead of winter i was going to ask you about the river hydropower project how that came about and what that process looked like So in, let's see, 2004, there was the study of all these rivers across Alaska, and the Quijack River got highlighted as really an ideal river because of how clear it is, the power of the current, and then that it's usually debris-free and relatively ice-free. So then the first round of funding the community got was with a renewable energy fund for hydrokinetic power. And we found out that the best use of the funding was to permit it so that hydrokinetic companies could come and test their device in our river. And so that's the way the community moved with with hydro. So at one point in time, all these device companies came to the community. We had a large gathering, and they got to present their different technologies. And then the Alaska Energy Authority vetted who they were going to fund to try deployment in the Quijack River. Through that process, Ocean Renewable Power Company tested their device, and we had a really good working relationship and saw the potential for a partnership. And after watching their test and then developing a plan to move forward, we've signed an agreement to solely work with them for hydropower and let them know that our community is interested in wind and solar and other technologies and that whatever system we put in place, battery energy storage system, and however we integrate it, that it has to be open to other renewables, but that we intend for the RivGen to really carry the base load of our community. Talk to me about the value of having that process in getting buy-in from the community, you know, having the ability to, to review the different technologies to, you know, make sure that the river and the salmon would be protected. So when Ocean Renewable Power Company came to Igiagig, they came to meet with the community and said, this is your river, and how can we make this technology work using your labor, your equipment, and for you to give us feedback on the engineering of our own device? 
it was a very unique approach compared to the other companies who came out to test and didn't involve the community. So the very fact that they used Alaskan companies, that they asked us for recommendations, and that they subcontracted to our own companies and our own people to do the work, helped in the larger picture of the buy-in. So we had people on the ground from that side of it. And then on the other, the community, you know, we meet on our projects every month at at monthly meetings. There were a lot of time for feedback, time to relay the concern, and then time to reevaluate. Like after we'd have a field season, I would say, okay, what I'm hearing from the village is we're concerned about smolt and we're concerned about ice. And I know that's not what you're concerned about trying to test your technology, but to the community of Igiagic, the fish absolutely are our priority. So whatever option we select cannot have a negative impact on our fish. So we met in the middle. Our partner understood the community's concerns. And to me, they took on the challenge with the best science. We had a technical advisory committee of barge captains, engineers, half of them from Alaska with real lived experience and just had these conversations of how do we make the device better all the way to the adaptive management team meetings with all the agencies and just making these decisions together and listening to the needs of the entire team. So just keeping open lines of communication um, and it has worked. It has worked really well. Have you always wanted to live and work in the Arctic? Don't mind the cold? Looking for a new career experience above the Arctic Circle? The Department of Energy has a wide variety of fellowships, internships, and other opportunities waiting for you. Our Arctic Energy Office partners with other DOE offices, tribal communities, the national labs, and academic institutions to offer programs like ARENA, the Arctic Remote Energy Networks Academy, which brings participants together to learn from mentors and build energy projects in Arctic communities. Visit energy.gov forward slash Arctic or follow the Arctic Energy Office on Twitter at Arctic Energy DOE to learn more about everything the department has to offer in the far north. Do you see Igiagig as a leader, as a, an example for other communities, other tribes to follow? We accepted a lot of this funding with the intention to be a model community, to model how communities can navigate this transition to clean energy. And we've taken that responsibility very seriously. Any opportunity that there has been to present either within the United States or even in Canada with the Inuit communities, we have taken it upon ourselves to communicate the messages of self-determination, that we have the ability to self-determine our own futures, and that your future doesn't have to look like Igiagig's, but here's one example that you can draw from and maybe be inspired by. And then ultimately, the power, and not speaking of electric power, but the power rests in the community and having a relationship with the companies to the point where if I wanted to go shut off RivGen right now, I know exactly where to go down to the shore station and push the off button because our community is uncomfortable. Putting those types of checks and balances into your relationship are essential to community buy-in and the whole vision of self-determination. So we have been trying to do this as an example that people can draw from um, and also learn from our mistakes or learn from our challenges and how we've overcome those, you know, and never gave up. There are so many times where we could have been like, oh, this is 
too hard because diesel is easy and it's predictable and you know how much it's going to cost and you budget for it accordingly. But this world of renewable energy, I think also gives an opportunity to really, really provide an example of how indigenous communities were always preparing and to really show our true colors of resiliency. And so that's one aspect of our project that I've really enjoyed. For you, you know, and for Igyagig, what what does the future hold? What is at the forefront of your mind? And and I want to focus this more specifically to energy. What are you looking forward to in the coming years? I'm really looking forward to going diesels off, which is much harder for smaller micro grids than I understood going into this. I would like to see wind energy and well, actually, just renewable energy is all integrated. We're at the point now where we're integrating with the diesels, which is the, the moment we've all been waiting for because it's got the greatest challenges. And then the community that's making decisions moving forward to be all, you know, fossil-free buildings and electric heat, being able to move away from even diesel heating. And then our community prospering because of that with an affordable cost of living out here are people being employed with these renewable energy options? When it comes to renewable energy and the fact that all of our communities are moving forward with some aspect of that and recognizing we need workforce or capacity development. So what's exciting to me for Bristol Bay, at least, is that Bristol Bay School District, Lake and Penn School District, Southwest School District, and Dillingham City Schools in an area the size of Ohio, the state of Ohio, all four have banded together a few years ago and created a career tech program. That career tech program is connecting our students with these type of vocational or college type credit classes. We have a girl, a senior right now, who has been certified to operate the vessels needed for the RIFGEN project, who is going to college to become an engineer. She's taking college-level classes through that program here locally, you know, when, when she graduates she will be practically at a sophomore level by the time she, she leaves, which is a cost savings to, you know, a lot of our people face a financial barrier to attending secondary education. I am just so excited about the technologies and expertise working with these companies has brought to our community and given our children, like, the thought that anything is possible. Like, you can dream big dreams, and it can become realistic, and at the same time, they have been so culturally grounded and have been able to balance their subsistence way of life with all that we're doing. I'm just ecstatic for what the future holds with our young people and their ability to problem solve and especially continue reducing our carbon footprint and inspiring, hopefully, the globe in that if it can be done here in our little community that is so geographically challenging to get to, that it can be done anywhere. Absolutely. Well, Alexander, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I, I thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story. You're welcome. That's all for this episode of Direct Current. We'll have more about Alexana, Igiagig, and the Department of Energy's work with other remote Alaskan communities in our show notes at energy.gov slash podcast. Thank you so much to my guest, Alexana Salmon, for sharing her inspiring story. Thanks as well to Victoria Vinal and Sarah Harmon for lending their voices to this episode. 
Subscribe to Direct Current on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to hear more episodes in our people-powered series. Direct Current is produced by me, Matt Dozier. Sarah Harmon creates original artwork for all of our episodes. This is a production of the U.S. Department of Energy and published from our nation's capital in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening.